first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the <laughs> No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit MethodProducts.com to unleash your inner shower. It's game time. Bill and T and Talkin' Sports. You're listening to the Game Day T Podcast mm-hmm. with your host, my name, D. Gill. Hello, everybody. This is the Game Day T. I am your host, D. Gill. Today is a lovely, lovely day to be above ground and another day to talk about LGBT activism and what other way would I want to do it than with the first Vietnamese internationally published health and fitness author, the first Asian LGBTQ athlete to be honored at the Brooklyn Nets fourth annual Pride Night, oh by the way was given the game ball, and the first Asian athlete ally of Stonewall UK Sports Championship Global Ambassador and the 2020 global change maker, no other than Amazon Lethe. Welcome oh, wow. to the show. What, what an introduction. I feel very honored. <laughs> of course, I have to. Hey, anybody who I talk to, I have to let them know that this is the real deal here on the Game Day team. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad to be on your show today. <laughs> well, thank you so, so much. Amazon, I first heard about you with a Outsports Forum call about how you know Asian LGBT community members need to be represented and you know the struggles you all go through and it just really really captivated me and I had put out a type of introduction on the sports LGBT page and you responded to me and I cannot be any happier that we are finally connecting here so tell me a little bit about yourself first and foremost so I'm a transracial adoptee I was brought up in an all white background, Um, you know, I I really had a hard time as a kid because I suffered a terrible amount of bullying and racism because I obviously just physically looked very different um, from everyone else. But also I struggled deeply with my sexuality as well. You know, it's, you know, I never saw an Asian person in the media. I never saw an LGBTQ person. I didn't even know what the acronym was or what the word was for how I felt inside. I truly believed I was the only Asian LGBTQ person in the world. Um, You know, and even now we still don't see the representation that we should, you know, around being Asian and LGBTQ in sports, you know, in TV and the media, we only make up 1% of all leading roles in Hollywood. So many Asian people, particularly kids, you know, go through what I went through because of not seeing your own story um, in the media. And, you know, it, it's, it's hard to know who you can become or what you can be and if you fe- what you feel inside is normal if you never see yourself. I went into sports 
at a very young age, really just to try and find a sense of community. But I found that in sport, you know, the bully and the racism followed me in sports because I was the only Asian kid in sports. And I saw very quickly the stereotype of what it is to be Asian in sports, that we're geeky, we're slow, our, leg, our limbs are, sh- are shorter, we're not designed for sports, you know, we should be going, you know, doing maths, not sports, we can't do anything very a- athletic. So I struggled there in terms of, you know, the, the racism and the bullying that I received from my team, other teams and my coaches um, as, as well. And I was pushed out of team sports. And, you know, for a lot of people, they find team sports enriching because of a sense of teamship and a sense of family. But I found it a very hostile environment um, as an Asian kid wanting to play sports. I went into bodybuilding at a very young age. I was six at the time. So highly unusual for a a kid and for an Asian kid as as well. Like, you know, I I think I started very early in terms of dismantling the Asian female, you know, geisha passive stereotype. Mm -hmm, Exactly. (laughs) But, you know, I I went from, um, you know, playing with kids in sport to suddenly the male dominated adult environment of, you know, the, the gym and bodybuilding, this kind of locker room talk and, you know, the horrible videos and the, the vile way that the Trump administration and, you know, his, the people around him talk about women. I found that in bodybuilding. Mm. I didn't really know what to expect. I was about seven or eight at the time when I started going to the gym and I encountered a terrible amount of misogyny and sexism oh. to my face and behind my back. And you have to realize these are adult men saying this to, you know, a seven, eight-year-old girl. Horrible. Horrible. And, you know, it's a very, and I think even now, you know, it's still very heterosexual, macho, masculine sports. Um, And and sport in general has very stiff and rigid gender norms that we're trying to dismantle and obviously the issues around trans inclusion and bodybuilding has always struggled with women having muscles and being muscular, but also feminine. But what did you say about to people who say trans women should not be allowed to participate in sports? I mean, it's it's such a hot topic, and this whole issue about you know the you know the the bathroom that trans people are going to attack cisgender people. No, actually, it's the other way around. Trans people feel threatened by cisgender people and we're perpetrating this fear and violence and we and we have to say for what it is then to kind of keep perpetrating this myth that it's the other way around and I think you know this whole fear of the unknown that somehow trans women are tricking us in some way because they're not women they're men and I always say when a trans woman or girl Um, joins a girls or women's sports team there are still zero men Mm -hmm. on that team they are who they say they are there's no scientific evidence that if you're trans you're going to be a better athlete if that was the case and we do so much research in sports anyway to know that it's not but if it was the case 
you would see trans people at the Olympics like you wouldn't believe. I mean, countries would actually just have trans teams if they thought that trans people had the edge. And the conversation is always around trans women, not trans men. And it comes down to the policing mm-hmm. of w- women. In general, general, you see it with Serena Williams, how she's policed around her outfit, but then her male counterparts, they can sit on the sideline with their T-shirts off and no one says anything. And I think, you know, COVID has given us a time to reset around what brave new world do we want to see coming out of COVID? Sport Mm -hmm. is just starting up. We've never seen the athlete activism that we have seen ever and we have to thank Colin Kaepernick oh, yes. for, for, for that and you know we need to start to dismantle sport and sports policies because of the difficulties that trans and non-binary people have within sports because it's so rigid in terms of male and female that you know where do even non-binary people fit when they don't even you know identify as a gender in, in, in sports. Being from Vietnam, is there a little bit of a history you can let me know? Why is it so that it is just not accepting? You know, I've heard this before in, you know, Asian countries in general, being LGBT is just not accepting in Asian countries in Vietnam as well. Um, you know, we face very unique difficulties that other communities don't necessarily face. You know, for the most part across Asia, we've had the one child policy that mm-hmm. other countries haven't had. So if you have only one child, then you want the best for that child. You've already set in your mind what you want for that child in terms of the college it's going to go to, the school, you know, the job it's going to have. It's going, you know, that child's going to get married. And you can't, and and as that one child, there's so much pressure on you to perform that you can't be anything else than what your parents have decided for you. Um, so that that has been an issue. And many countries have kind of dismantled that one child policy, but still there's a lot of, of, of pressure. Um, also shame and failure are, are used within our community um, a, a, a lot. There's such a high expectation for an Asian child. I mean, it's so high that it's a benchmark that we can never achieve. And, you know, it's the whole loss of face if something happens. And, you know, when people look at the Asian American community, you know, they think we're very wealthy. They think we're very successful. We all go to university, but we have one of the highest suicide rates in the world because Mm. of the pressure to conform and to succeed. Asian college students contemplate suicide more than any other racial group and, and, and white wow. students um, between the ages of kind of like for Asian women, I think it's like between like kind of 18 and mid twenties, we have one of the highest suicide rates. Um, we experience poverty at an extremely high level. Actually in New York, the, the racial group that has the highest rate of poverty is the Asian community. In terms of senior citizens, we have one of the highest rates of um, poverty there. In terms of what's happened in COVID, we actually have one of the highest unemployment rates. And in terms of university college students, we actually don't have that, you know, in, in terms of the stats, they're not as high as what you are made to 
believe, but it's the stereotype that's perpetrated in the media that then pushes that Asian kid to succeed. And also as well, we're part of this invisible model minority race. And that's the, the, we're the only community that has this tagline, as soon as I'm born, I'm born into it. And this all stems down from white supremacy in terms of our closeness and proximity to whiteness and how the Asian community is pitted against other racial groups as the model minority that all other racial groups should live up to because of our, our proximity to whiteness through white supremacy. Wow. So that provides obviously a very big factor. And for the most part, we're immigrants. So if you think, I mean, we're the fastest growing racial group in the US, but the most invisible and at times the most irrelevant. Within 20 years, one in 10 people will be Asian, but we're descendants from immigrants. So if your parents have, you know, rode on a boat or struggled somehow to get to the US or any other Western country, you know, they want the best for you. They don't want you to turn around and say, I'm going to be a football player or, you know what, I want to just be a drag queen at the, the local nightclub down. <laughs> and it should be okay. And being from the African-American community, I, I, I totally understand these stereotypes that get put on you from birth. And it's, you know, all of a sudden our job and in, in a lot of Americans out there, a lot of people in general out there feel like it's your job to fix it, but we don't really want to help you out. And with the, you know, being Asian and a member of the LGBT community, now we have the stereotypes of the coronavirus and how, you know, members of the LGBT community and Asians in general are being treated because everybody thinks that it's Asians' fault for the coronavirus. Can you talk a little bit about that type of stereotype yourself, personally? I have, and it's, and it's really interesting that we're blamed for this virus. And it's like, oh, should we be so flattered that the world thinks that we rule every country in the world? And, and what is really interesting, they kind of traced it back in terms of the first cases going through New York. It actually came from Europe, hmm. not a, a, a Asia. I have experienced already a terrible amount of um, COVID racism because people can't differentiate in terms of, you know, who's Asian and who's not. And in the US, it's been, you know, particularly bad, particularly in New York. Mm. You know, we, we are being set on fire. We're being beaten with big baseball bats. We're being beaten up. Um, you know, now the FBI are involved. You know, there are special hotlines set up. New York has set up a special Asian hate crime task force within the police force. I mean, it is really serious. And, and you yes. know, it's coming from the rhetoric from the White House. You know, whenever he does a, a briefing, it's always the China virus, the China plague. So this just reinforces the idea that we are the scapegoat for the worst health crisis in the world and everyone is just using us as a punching bag. I mean, obviously all different racial groups have been disproportionately affected by you know, the, the pandemic, but particularly the Asian community for the mere fact of how we've been blamed for it. You know, and Asian kids, they're experiencing racism for the first time. And the thing is, is that at some point we will have a vaccine for the virus, but you know, racism is the real virus that will remain, you know, yeah. 
after this fact because there was always racism towards my community but now it's it, people can justify and say it publicly because the White House do every single day. And that's why we need more people like you that are unapologetically so out there with their activism. Um, when I was reading on what you have accomplished and what you're doing and for the LGBT community, I, it blows me away that I have I, have, I don't think I've known anybody personally that is doing what you are doing. I mean, in 2014, you were the first athlete ally, you know, the Asian ally. In 2016, for GLAAD, named you one of the only seven Asian LGBTQ activists. 2018, you were named by American National Queer Asian Pacific Islander Alliance as someone who was accelerating sports equality. How did you even manage to get to do all of this and still be you and face the backlash. It, you just please tell me about that because that is just so amazing to me. I, I never set out to achieve any of this. And it really comes down to my own experience as a kid, experiencing a terrible amount of racism and bullying and just thinking, I want to make an impact in the world for my community. I have no idea what it was. I had no role models. I had no one that believed in me. You know, when I was a child, I must have been like seven or eight at the time, my teacher made me stand up in front of everyone in the class and would have been about 30 kids in the class. And she said, this is what failure looked like. <gasps> and at most in life, I would be the one kid that would fail. And if I did succeed, I would only make it to be a potato peeler, if that's. And oh my goodness. Everyone laughed at me. I just kind of stood there thinking, I can't cry because everyone is laughing at me, including the teacher. Then when I sat down, she threw the blackboard eraser and it, the wooden bit just hit me on my forehead. And I just thought to myself, I'll never feel, I will never be made to feel this humiliated again. And I never want any child to go through what I have just gone through then. And it really kind of stuck in my mind. I had extremely low self-worth and absolutely no confidence. And I hated being Asian and I hated people hating me. And I hated the fact that I was confused about my sexuality and I had no word for it. And I hated feeling like I was the only Asian kid that felt like this in the entire world. And it was really through bodybuilding that started to open up my eyes in terms of how I could use sport as a platform for something. And it was only, you know, my times in the reception at the gym when I started to read all the bodybuilding magazines and I learned about a person called Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm. And his like funny name, funny accent, came from a faraway place, but then levitated himself through sports and was able to see the world through sports and use it as a platform to have converse, to have the type of conversations that obviously he's having now and yes. you know had to, to today and that kind of really drove me um fall forward um and I never I mean because bodybuilding was such a you know heterosexual sport I knew very early long that I could never come out um, and I just kind of pushed that to the side. I could never see a day where I could be openly out, particularly in sports. And the one bodybuilder that did come out 
um, was ostracized by the community, lost all his sponsors, and then the Bodybuilding Federation just turned on him and just made the sport even more heterosexual to the point of like going towards the Playboy um, roots. So I just kind of decided that, you know, along in my journey that if I just shared my story with enough people, someone would listen and it would resonate with someone. Um, But I never set out to be like the first here, the first there. It was just kind of along the work that I do, I've realized that at the kind of level that I'm at with my advocacy because I'm able to travel the world. I speak Mm -hmm. to governments all over the world and businesses and community leaders about, you know, using sport as a platform for quality and looking through the Asian lens. I realized like I'm the only person (laughs) that's doing it. So for, for a good chunk of long time, I'm going to be the first, but I'd like to think I'm the first of many that I've helped to open doors for other Asian advocates and athletes and LGBTQ people that will come after me. And yes, it is very challenging. I never thought I would encounter so much nastiness in trying to do good. And the backlash for being Asian and sitting in rooms where you're told to your face that you're irrelevant and your community is irrelevant and no one would be interested in learning about being Asian Mm. and LGBTQ and it's like this this is the very reason why I am (laughs) because of saying this to my face and for the most part I walk into all white rooms and I have to try and find a way for to change their hearts and minds and to start looking through a racial lens of color instead of a white lens of privilege. Well it's funny that you say that because if MLK Martin Luther King was told those type of things to his face and he stopped, we wouldn't be here today. If the backlash from Barack Obama, when he said, hey, you know, I want to make sure that every single person in the LGBT community has a right to be married, you know, then we wouldn't have the right to get married. Women's rights to vote, um, civil rights movement, it all started with people doing what you're doing. And anybody listening to this right now, if you're, if you want to be an activist, but you're kind of afraid of the backlash, just know that the backlash is going to come, but we need you because good things happen when we give our platform and tell our stories and seek change. You know, we wouldn't have the athlete activism we had today if Colin Kaepernick didn't kneel and, you know, lose his place in sports as a pro athlete. Mm -hmm. Um, it, It always takes that one person to step into the unknown and fight for what they believe in right now we're going to take a quick little break don't you go anywhere (laughs) and we'll be right back with the game day tea all right hello everyone welcome back to the game day tea i'm your host d gill and i'm talking to amazon lehi an lgbtq sports advocate now and specifically in the sports world what do you say to people that actively think that you know why do we have to talk about lgbt members in sports you know if you're good we can play you know it doesn't matter uh you should be able to play and we don't need to address those issues why do you think it's important for athletes to really be activists in the lgbt community you know equality isn't just for lgbtq community it's you know for women for disabled for different racial groups and in theory yeah that's a nice thought why should we have to 
continue to speak about it if you know sport has nothing to do with your sexuality and gender identity but unfortunately it does we still live in a world where it's anti-lgbtq we still live in a world where an lgbtq athlete will step onto the field and will hear 80,000 people chanting homophobic biphobic and transphobic slurs at, at, at them you know people are still you know being killed you know you know we still don't have the amount of male pro out athletes in certain sports like you know yeah. football and soccer in the way that we should I mean we look at the national women's soccer team in America of how accepting it is for gay women but look on the men's team we just don't have that um, representation and the thing is you know sport is a language that everyone understands it brings people together it changes hearts and minds and when what people need to realize is that so much of the world is still hostile towards LGBTQ community in many parts of the world we are sentenced to death mm-hmm. and we it, it's very can be very challenging to have head-on conversations around politics and directly to the government. So we have to do it a softer way and that way is through sports. Exactly. Um, I do want to say to a very congratulations to you for becoming the latest personality to join the ABB FIA Formula E Championship open talent call for presenters and judges panel. Um, That to me, when I heard that announcement, I said, this is very unique because you're blending sports with um, competition and on and personalities. Like, how did all that matriculate for you? I never thought that I would enter into motorsports. And I think for the most part, for a lot of people, there's this stereotype, particularly, and it's driven through Formula E, one mm-hmm. of, you know, it's a, it's a very white elitist, very expensive sport. I mean, it's the most expensive sport in the world and earliest small portion of the world can actually you know participate in that sport and then obviously tickets on top of that are vastly expense more expensive Um, formula e is very different it's electric um, motor racing and it's far more accessible to the average um person and i think you know we have to have these conversations across all sports because you know motor racing isn't a diverse sport when when we think of someone who's not white we always go to lewis hamilton mm-hmm. and it's like he can't be that the only person in it and lgbtq athletes in sport you know zero to none and in terms of you know when we think of lgbtq inclusion it's not not just on the field it's the decision makers because it's the decision makers who decide who goes in front yeah. of the camera that's where we start that's where we start and you know formula E always has always had this remit of nurturing diversity and inclusion and championing LGBTQ equality and also having openly out, you know, role models. So, you know, this was an amazing opportunity when they came to me and asked me for me to be one of three judges for their first ever, you know, youth competition to look for an 18 to 24 year old um, person to be an on-camera uh, presenter or commentator and I thought what an amazing opportunity for me someone who's Asian coming from the LGBTQ community being placed in a decision making role where I can make sure that I you know we choose someone who is 
diverse, who feel like they're included, and also, you know, everyone can see someone that looks like them um, yes. as, 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 as well. So I think, you know, we always have to think about it as you know, a holistic whole, not just around, you know, athletes. And I appreciate Formula E for some, they had a meeting obviously one day and said, let's look around the room. What do we see? Everybody that looks like me. And most likely that was a certain type of look, type of person. And they said, we need some diversity in here. So kudos for, to Formula E for doing that. Now, will you ever get behind a car? Because that sounds, even though it's electric, it sounds like it's pretty scary to me. Not driving, but at least being a passenger um, going yeah. around the track. It's just like a little, I, I hope I at, at some point can experience that. <laughs> that would be so amazing. I did want to talk about the Amazon Lehi Foundation because um, it's near and dear to you. And I feel like anybody listening to this podcast today needs to hear about it. Can you please tell me about your foundation and what it means to you? I'm launching my foundation next year um, in Atlanta and my organization will sit there. You know, for me, I think about when I was a kid, I just, you know, I didn't have any programs that celebrated and nurtured, you know, who, who I was and, you know, gave me access to different community leaders, particularly arts leaders in the community. So a, a couple of years, a few years ago, um, I piloted in my own country a leadership sports business and education program, which was the first in Asia that looked at providing very unique skill sets to LGBTQ youth experiencing homelessness and then fast tracking them into career path de development. And for me, I wrote that program because this is what I would have loved as a kid, a program where I could, you know, engage in sports and in business and in education, where I was loved and celebrated, where, you know, I wasn't bullied or discriminated against and then had access to leaders within the community with job prospects at the end. And, you know, we already know that, you know, LGBTQ youth homelessness is a pandemic in itself. Yes. It's epidemic. Atlanta, um, New York, Los Angeles, some of the biggest cities being hit with that. Yes. And, you know, LGBTQ youth only make up three to 5% of the total youth population, but over 40% are made homeless. And a new study came out last year by Georgia State University that in Atlanta, any given night, over 800 LGBTQ youth are homeless. Mm -hmm. You know, and they, and obviously all the youth are coming from the South because of, you know, Republican states and Christianity and going to the warmer, you know, you know, either going to California or to New York and, you know, there's nothing there for them. Yeah. And, you know, we lack programming um, as well. And, you know, for a lot of people, you know, it's not a sexy topic, I, mm -hmm. you know, but th these are the next generation and we can't leave them behind. And just because they're homeless doesn't mean they don't have hopes and dreams. And I think, you know, I can't help everyone, but if I can help a small percentage of them, then, you know, I've changed their lives forever. And, yeah. you know, they will be integrated back into the community as out leaders and then help others like, like them. I, I went to Georgia State myself, actually. I have a degree in exercise science. And when they, especially around daylight savings time, when it gets a little bit darker at night, and you 
the classes are literally downtown and you see the homeless, you know, the homeless out on the streets. And I remember vividly one semester, this was the fall of 2011. And I had a homeless person come up to me and their mannerisms were very flamboyant, you know, as a male. And he, I just felt really bad because he was asking me, hey, do you want to go somewhere? And it was just trying to solicit me, you know? And I just felt like, wow, this person really needs help, you know? And he looked younger, which really stuck, stood out to me. And I just felt like, how did this happen? You know, I don't know what I can do right now being a student. I'm not in a place, like I, my, my mind was just trying to be safe, right? But I would just, at the run, when I got to my car, I said, wow, I really wish I can help him because I don't know how this happened. And this could have easily happened to me growing up as a member of the LGBT community in Georgia from the South. And so what you're doing will help so many people, especially where you're at in Atlanta, Georgia right now as well. You know, kids are coming out earlier in life, like at 10. So, and they're getting, you know, they're being made homeless, you know, at the age of 10. And, you know, once they spend so many years on the streets, you know, it, it becomes more and more difficult. I mean, I used to be homeless myself when I've lived in poverty and I've suffered, you know, from severe mental health and feeling, you know, having terrible suicidal thoughts. So I, I know what it feels like. It comes from personal um, ex experience as well. And, you know, we, we know that Atlanta is one of the hubs because it's a very popular city for conferences. So there's a lot of human trafficking that happens. Yeah in Atlanta and a lot of kids, you know, or, you know, solicit for survival sex because they just think if, if there was just like one night, I could not live on the streets and sleep in a warm bed and get fed by someone, but it's at the cost of selling your body um, yeah. for that and what might come in terms of, you know, the violence and other horrible things that might um, happen. And, you know, for a lot of the LGBTQ youth that are homeless, they come from different racial groups so they're already marginalized on top of being marginalized again and they just don't get the opportunities of the privileged kids and I think that's unfair and if I can create a program where they do get these opportunities and at the end of it you know there is some kind of higher education job placement becoming financially stable I think you know why should I, you know, I, sh I should try and do whatever I can because I used to be one of those um, kids. And that's, that's excellent because um, when we look to, I think it's human nature that we want to identify and be a part of things that we relate to. So when they hear that story, that you were homeless, you are a part of the LGBT community, I think that's going to resonate with a lot of people and who, who you're trying to target. And so... Where can people find more information about your foundation and possibly donate in the future? Sure. So at the moment, you can go to amazonletty.com and you can find me across social media at amazonletty. Awesome. Well, I do quickly want to mention this, that I did see your bodybuilding pictures, okay? <laughs> and you are <laughs> your body amazing I, I know you're still in shape during these COVID times my gym in California has been shut down and it's been a, 
kind of hard to really stay in shape. And with that staying inside, the diet goes to crap and everything like that. Can you give me just some tips on how, like, how I can stay active <laughs> and like my diet? Like, what, what do you got for me? Because I need help. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's true. It's like, you know, we need to think differently about our fitness because, yeah, gyms are closed because of the pandemic. When they do open up, you know, do we really want to go back? I mean, we're in it for the long haul right right now and we have to be creative so i'm also the health and fitness writer for livestrong.com and i've kind of written very kind of innovative programs that people can do with trees with gallons of water with shopping bags with dumbbells that you have at home actually across the u.s there's dumbbell shortage (laughs) because everyone's bought Everyone's bored. I'm an occupational therapist, and I even went on Amazon to try to find some dumbbells for my clients, and I could not find any. (laughs) So I actually suggest resistance bands. Resistance bands work just as effectively if you don't have um, dumbbells. And I think as well, it's important to keep to a routine because you know when you were going to the gym, you had a routine. It's important to still keep to that routine, you know, if you are able to go outside, even if it's like walking around the block, if obviously in California, you have access to go to the the beaches. If you don't have access to resistance bands, a gallon of water does the trick anywhere where you can get resistance with your muscles. Um, In terms of diet, and I think, you know, look, a lot of people have turned to comfort eating through the pandemic. And I can so seriously understand. Like, I mean, I tu- I mean, I'm going to be the first to admit I turned to comfort eating as well. The isolation, the loneliness, the lack of routine. Um, you know, you're not, you're, you, you, there's a lack of creativity as well because you're, you know, you're not getting stimulated in the way that you used to get yeah. stimulated. So it's, it's so important to kind of keep on point with, good nutrition because also that will help you get through the pandemic because you know in terms of staying healthy this is not the time to get sick um either either. um and you know just kind of little things that you can do in terms of you know when you go to the supermarket i always sort of say you know never go to the supermarket on an empty stomach if you if you haven't eaten always make sure you have a snack in the car and i'm i would say nuts because nuts is protein and will fill your stomach and also have a bottle of water because that will fill your stomach. Because when you're hungry, you know, your blood sugar is going up and down. You will buy that chocolate cake and then get home and think, I didn't need that chocolate cake, but then you will go and eat it at some point through comfort. Exactly. And you just spent your money on it. You don't want to waste your money. (laughs) Gosh, that was just me. I had a moose cake and I'm like, uh, (laughs) <laughs> okay, my parents' house was like, that was really good. I don't really need this, but oh, it's so good. Yeah. And, you know, fitness begins in the kitchen. And I think this is a good time to do meal prepping as well, because a lot of times, you know, obviously if you're not stimulated enough, the last thing you want to do is you know, go into the kitchen and make food, but then you start grabbing for whatever is there and then start going to takeaway. I always think, you know, at the beginning of the week, you know, meal prep for the week and yeah. then cook, you know, a huge amount of vegetables and you know some rice and pasta and potatoes lean meats and fish and then you can freeze 
all yes. of that. So, you know, and then just put like, you know, lunch, dinner labels on it. So, you know, you, you need to kind of make it very turnkey for yourself because the pandemic is taking up a lot of mental energy just to maintaining our mental health. And, you know, the, and also when we go out, we're having to avoid people as well because we, we you know, with social distancing and, and that takes up a lot of mental energy. So you really just have to make it very turnkey for yourself in other areas of your life to be able to try and stay on track with your health and fitness. Yes. And if anybody out there is listening, Amazon, you have some books on amazon.com, total strength training for women and free rate training, basic home training. Um, so if you wanted to, anybody out there that needs a little bit more, you know, structure and, you know, literature, Amazon, your books are out there. Um, those look very amazing. I, I am going to be getting one of those as well but, um, with my sister because she needs a little help too. <laughs> <laughs> so I do want to ask you a couple little funny questions, okay, because, you know, this has been a serious topic, but I do want to ask you some questions so that our listeners can get to know you a little bit in a way that they probably don't wouldn't know without, you know, knowing you. So first off, I want to ask you, favorite Vietnamese snack or American snack? Um, favorite Vietnamese snack are the um, summer rolls. How's that taste? Yeah, no, it's like, it's just, I mean, actually really healthy. It's rice paper wrapped in salad. And sometimes it just has like chicken in it on prawns. So that's my favorite Vietnamese snack. <laughs> to be honest, mm -hmm. I find American food very fatty, high, like high in salts. Yeah. sugar and fats I'm always very surprised when I look at the bread and like you know I, I can't eat a lot of the food so I, I mean I don't really eat out that much I you know I, I make sure I, I cook and I think it just comes with a life when you have you know when you for me you know a lifetime of sports mm -hmm. and because I started at six I learned very quickly in terms of how to maintain very good health I mean, I think I'm probably the only person that has 15 kinds of vegetables a night for dinner, you know, five wow. different pieces of fruit. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. I'm very healthy. You know, I, I brush and floss after every time I eat. <laughs> Can you be my coach, please? <laughs> That's but what I, I, my mental health coach, please. <laughs> I mean, and I, I don't expect everyone to be like, like, my, like me, but obviously, you know, one must have to maintain some reasonable kind of health and fitness, particularly through pandemic, but also throughout your life, because, you know, you want to live a long and happy life. You don't want to get to a certain point and have very high cholesterol, or, you know, die of a heart attack because you've been eating fatty foods mm -hmm. or, your, your life that's, that's um, very true um i got covid in july and it gave me blood clots and so i have really had to evaluate my diet because they did a blood draw and in my some of my cholesterol my ldl which is you know the, the bad cholesterol it was kind of elevated and i said i have got to change my you know my eating habits so i totally agree with that i'm going to try to eat at about 10 more vegetables a night now <laughs> so, <laughs> so I can do what you're doing to make sure that I'm healthy. <laughs> All right, so next question, favorite athlete and why? Colin Kaepernick, you know, when he knelt, he really brought back the, I, I never thought I would see ever a modern day Martin Luther King. Mm. And when Colin Kaepernick 
knelt, he took me back to all the understandings I have of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and the civil rights movement and really bringing sport back to activism yes. in that way and what he has done and how he has changed the landscape of sports now with athletes activism. And I think if we were in the Obama administration right now or the Clinton administration, he would have received the Medal of Freedom by the White House for all the that. work that he does. And I hope the Biden administration give him that because we have to thank him for so much. What is your most proudest moment of your life so far? Gosh, mm -hmm. you know, I, I get asked this question and I always get stumped. <laughs> I know, uh, you do so much and everything is so good, right? And, and I think I'm extremely humble in my approach even when people ask me what do I do I just kind of go you know a bit of this and a bit of that <laughs> <laughs> that's true that, that's very true because I, I never had planned any of this I could never have planned any of this my kind of motto that I always had was that if I share my story to enough people someone will listen and it will resonate with someone and when I look back and see all these amazing milestones I I find it quite even unbelievable in myself and I think I'm quite hard on myself because I always kind of think oh I should be doing more <laughs> what more can I do <laughs> hey, a lot and I think you're going to do it as well <laughs> yeah, yeah. all right last question what would you tell your 16 year old self you know I would say that it's going to be okay and that I'm en enough. And I kind of think, you know, particularly from the LGBTQ community, you know, we're always told that we're not good enough, that, you know, who, who we are is not right for society. Um, and, you know, I think I would, you know, go back and say that, you know, it's, it's going to be okay. And everything that you thought was going to happen did, but you couldn't have dreamed of how extraordinary it would, would be. Because I still remember when I was a kid thinking that I wanted to make this impact. And I, but I didn't know what the impact was, but I knew I wanted to make it. And I look back and I think that because of that moment and how I believed in myself along the way, because no one else believed in me is the reason why I'm here today speaking to you about what I've done. Exactly. I love it. And you know, with that, Amazon, it's, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and get to know you and everybody listening, please, please, please take this conversation that we had and let it resonate with you. And hopefully, if you're if you're an ally, if you're part of the LGBT community, let's let's do this. This is 2020, but we have a lot more to go. Amazon, I just really thank you for coming on the game day tea today. I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed being on the show with you. And with that, this concludes our episode of the Game Day Tea. You can follow the Game Day Tea at all social media platforms at the Game Day Tea, all one word. Everybody just remember this, be you, be true, and be fierce.